as well as the possible or likely ingredients of the soup. We were talking about quantum mechanics, infinity and not self. And I thought as I left dinner that maybe that would be an interesting place to start a Dharma talk. Though I might refer to those themes in, in different ways and different words. I promise you I won't re- attempt to talk too much about quantum mechanics. Some of you may be familiar with the Hindu tradition of Advaita. Uh, means non-dual, A, always in, in Indian languages, in the Pali as well as the Sanskrit meaning is a negation of like anatta, atta means self, anatta, not self. Dwight, the root meaning two, so advait, non-two, not two, non-dual. And there's, there's very many parallels between the teachings of the Advaita tradition and Buddhist understanding, the Buddha's understanding. The most famous uh, recent saint of the Advaita tradition being Ramana Maharshi, who lived in the first half of the 20th century, died in the 50s and lived in South India. And he had a student called Harilal Punja, who became known as Punjaji or Papaji, who lived in Lucknow until about five years ago when he died. And many people with a deep love of this kind of tradition and practicing in the Buddhist scene also uh, studying and practicing with him. And one friend uh, called Jaya. Uh, friend who I practiced with for some years in India and have taught there with her a few times as well. She lived and practiced with Punjaji for some years through throughout the 90s and uh, very much influenced by his teaching. And this summer she came to France to uh, the Dharma Yatra Dharma Yatra means uh, pilgrimage and the Dharma Yatra is something I've been involved with and leading for the last three years in France where I live and typically on the Yatra about 80 or 120 people come uh, and we walk through southern France we call it a Yatra, a pilgrimage but we have no particular object that we're heading for which seems to be in the spirit of a Dharma pilgrimage. That the journey is more about the being here than the getting there. And so the, the Dharma Yatra is not as formal as a retreat. It's not held completely in silence. There's lots of opportunities for people to hang out and uh, connect and discuss and uh, live and eat and work and form relationships and things together as well as lots of silent walking time. So when Jaya arrived on the walk from India 
she arrived at the place, hot day, she took off her sweatshirt, and underneath she was wearing a t-shirt, and on the t-shirt it said, stop meditating. Rather dangerous slogan for a meditation teacher. She could put herself out of a job. And uh, this was, of course, uh, a cause for some uh, amusement and some bemusement, some confusion, even for people on the walk. Refers to her teacher, Pundaji, was very fond of making these kind of provocative statements, uh, like, stop meditating. So, what does that mean? Of course, it could mean we can just give up, relax. But at a deeper sense, what does that mean? Stop meditating. Usually our our meditation practice is concerned with the convention the conventions of subject and object. Subject, me, object, breathing, body, feelings, perceptions, consciousness, mental formations. Different there's a classic kind of Buddhist way Buddha breaks down these four areas worthy of our attention. The four foundations of mindfulness in the tradition. So body, feelings, mental formations, thoughts, moods, emotions, and dharma, impermanence. Things that we've touched on over the days here. And our meditation practice is a process of paying attention to those things, paying attention to the body, paying attention to feelings. And that we could call subject-object meditation. I meditate upon. And that's the medita- that's meditating. I'm meditating. And we could call that the methodol- method- method- methodology or the techniques. And of course there's lots of different techniques. So here we emphasize bare awareness, caring attention, and connection with the object might be breathing or body. Other other traditions might emphasize a mantra, might emphasize visualization, but it's just all a matter of technique. And I think it's important to um, make that clear somehow. It's just technique. There's lots of... uh, If we're not careful, we could listen to different views and opinions from different traditions and different teachers about right technique and wrong technique and best technique, fastest technique, most cosmic technique. But just technique. Just a relationship between subject and object. Me paying attention to something. So some traditions say best technique is to pay attention to the breathing at the nostril. Some say best technique is to pay attention at the diaphragm. Some say best technique is to pay attention to the general movement of the breath in and out. 
Some say best technique is to count the breathing. Some say, and I'd include myself in this one, best technique is to pay attention in the way that works. Might be here, might be here. But that the connection is the important thing, and that whatever technique serves in that, that's the right one or the best one. So when we pay attention in that way, to our breathing for example, we might say, I'm aware of the breathing. That's what we practice, I'm aware of the breathing. Is the aware, awareness is of the object. So awareness is the subject. I'm going to talk a lot of now about subject and object. And it might appear to be heady or intellectual, but try to make the link in the experience, because this is, this is at the heart of what's going on, moment by moment, in our lives. Subject, I, am aware of object, breathing. So we have some sense of the objects changing. Breathing is coming and going, coming and going. Then another object impinges, called a thought, start thinking about this. Then I realise I'm thinking, I come back to the breathing. Then the knee starts to be uncomfortable. So the objects are changing. But we have some sense that there's a noticing of that. I'm aware of that. We have a sense of the subject being able to pay attention. I am aware of. I was aware of my breathing. Then I started thinking. Then I was aware of thinking. Then I came back to breathing. So I, the sense of I, is in the subject I'm aware of. But sometimes when we're very uh, quiet, when we're very receptive, we're listening deeply to our inner life. And we notice a thought come up. I wonder what time it is. Or, I've really got this meditation on the breathing thing. Or, I'm hopeless, or whatever. And we notice that thought, I'm paying attention to breathing. And we see that as an object of awareness. First is the sense, I'm paying attention to the breathing, coming and going, coming and going. And then we they describe that to ourselves, we say, I'm paying attention to the breathing. But awareness recognises that thought, I'm paying attention. And we say, there was a real awareness of I. There's real awareness. I really had a sense of the sense of self arising in the thought I. In those quiet moments, we can have a, a real, uh, very much be touched by the sense of self arising as the I thought. What's significant about that? I has become the object. First, I was the subject, I'm aware of. 
and then there's awareness of I. That's very strange. We've got this sense of I going along here as being, you know, somehow bound up with the sense of the observer. I know my experience, I look out and I see you, I look at the breathing and I watch it coming and going. I seems to be the subject of our experience. And then when we're very quiet, when we're looking carefully, we see I as the object of experience. I seems to be able to move between being the subject and being the object. I as subject, I as object. If we really stop and contemplate that, if we actually recognise what's that? That I can be the subject of experience and then can appear as the object. What does that say about the conventions of subject and object? Of this and that, of here and there, of me and you. Sometimes in meditation, in real quietitude and stillness, the objects, breathing, body, feelings, thoughts, have just a very, very quiet life of their own. Body is steady, subtle. Mind, still, bright, concentrated. And therefore, whatever kind of impinges on consciousness doesn't create too much of a ripple. There's the... just the kind of sensations, vibrations of body going on in the background, occasionally impinging, but... Very qu- in a very, very quiet way. A thought, when it arises, there's enough receptivity and stillness of mind that it's really seen the beginning, the way a thought takes birth and drops away again. Hardly makes a ripple. So the whole world of objects in meditation can start to seem very, very trivial, secondary, not the main event, not the most interesting thing. Rather than saying, my wife said this to me, or um, my life's like this, or all the stuff of our story, the world of objects has, has kind of retreated in the way it's impacting so much that we, we refer to it rather than the story of my life or all these dramas that are happening to me. We would call it the life of objects. Or just change. Just life living itself quietly self-propelled and not needing of any kind of interference or control or extra stuff by me just 
very quiet sense of the, the, the world of objects not being the main event. And that which has known objects, that which attends to the breathing, that which knows the bodily life, that which is doing the knowing, starts to stand out by itself without needing any object to reveal. No objects and no subject. The I thought isn't in there. The I thought, if it comes, just a little bubble is in the world of objects, just something that's appearing. Without a sense of I as being the subject, and without I even appearing in the world of objects, something luminous, <coughs> aware, knowing, alive, is there. And there's no gap between subject and object. The very idea of subject-object duality dissolves. And, and here, language can't really serve us anymore. Language only works in terms of subject and object. This is the end of subject and object. This is the end of meditating. Wouldn't say the end of meditation, but the end of meditating. This is what Jaya's t shirt is asking of us stop meditating. To be willing to look beyond the convention of subject and object. When I was at school, I remember, uh, and this memory was uh, stimulated in talking with the managers this evening, I remember the day the maths teacher spoke about infinity for the first time. I remember it because it, it stopped me in my tracks. Because I was trying to grasp what he was talking about, trying to understand what he was talking about, trying to get to that point where there's more, but there never stops being more. And once you get to the end of that, there's more. And it, of course, 
poor old mind, subject-object mind, dualistic mind, how, how's it going to cope with infinity? But it literally stopped me dead. I remember sitting in the... I mean, maybe it wasn't quite like this, but the memory, like I was saying earlier today, memory is highly dubious in terms of its accuracy. We remember things in whatever way fits in with our current propensity to want to see it. So the way I remember it is I'm like this. <laughs> At the desk, mouth wide open, struck by the enormity of infinity. <coughs> Maybe it wasn't quite like that. But nevertheless, my sense at the time was, and again, at the time I wouldn't have called it an insight, but looking back, seeing that there was the first time that I could clearly recognise that there's a limitation to the mind. That there is that, in this case infinity, there's that which is beyond the mind's, compre- the, beyond the mind's capacity to comprehend it. It doesn't matter how hard we try. Again, we can come up with a description. We say infinity. Oh, that's when something never ends. But that's, that's, that's not what infinity is. Infinity is... Beyond, by its very nature, beyond our capacity to comprehend it. It's beyond, period, beyond everything. And when I, when I got home from the maths lesson, still shocked, I remember going outside to look at the sky. So the maths teacher, as well as talking about numbers, had tried to stimulate our imagination by talking about the infinity of space as well, <laughs> as if the infinity of numbers wasn't enough. And the same experience, except more so, but more viscerally somehow faced with the kind of again the memory (laughs) tells me the memory paints a picture of this vast star studded sky but let's face it this was England I was growing up in so it was probably rather cloudy and dull sky we never know but that sense of trying to get a handle on trying to grasp the enormity of the idea of the infinity of space endless you know, when we try to go there the very, the very nature we try to go there go where? endlessness that means always going 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 never arriving and as, as we were talking about this in the, in, with the managers this evening it struck me as a very good metaphor or example for seeing that there's that which is clearly undeniable infinity you know even if we don't like the idea of infinity we can't deny it because if you go on and on and on in space imagine you come to the end but there has to be something after the end it can't be an absolute end so go beyond the end what's after the end well and more so what's beyond more more and more it has to be in, in fact infinity is very logical I guess but we can't grasp it so I thought this is a very good example of seeing the mind's limitation there's that which is undeniably true called infinity and yet there's a complete incapacity of the mind 
to get a handle on that. But maybe having a sense of that stimulates some doubt for us in the veracity of the mind's version of events. This mind tries to give us the kind of authoritative account of life. But it can only manage in these rather limited terms. This and that, me and you. Subject and object. And all the while that we look out and we see subjects and objects, then it's really worthwhile, of course, attending deeply. This is the field in which all of our life experience is happening. Everywhere you've been, everything you've done, everyone you've been with, every experience you've had, we process in terms of subject and object. I went here, I did that. I was with him. I thought this about that. Everything we describe to ourselves is in this realm of subject and object. Our whole life is a collision of subjects and objects. So we really ought to be deeply, passionately interested in the nature of subject and object. And that's why we practice. That's why we observe objects. But it would be a shame if that was the extent of our meditation, if our sense of meditation was limited to subject and object. It would be a shame if we did if we in quietitude, in the stillness of experience, where thoughts aren't making ripples, where the body isn't calling to us somehow. It would be a shame if in that silence where objects stop impinging, we started to go back to the breath or look for an object of meditation. So we give ourselves, hopefully, fully to the investigation of objects to seeing all that which arises and passes away from really attending to our breath from really attending to the fact of the moment whatever it is but keeping our heart and mind and being open to the possibility to the whisper of that which is beyond subject and object. That in which all subjects and objects find their rest. That in which therefore the gap between subject and object disappears. And that gap is the gap between me and the rest of life. 
the pain we experience we could kind of measure as the size of that gap between me and the rest of life and what characterizes any kind of acute or extreme emotional difficulty that might be fear, panic, despair, anger what we can really notice about those kind of mind states and their difficulty is that one feels very contracted, very separate the sense of separation in the midst of fear is very very strong even physically, the way the body hardens in fear it's like we harden our boundaries actually physically between me and the rest of life the same with anger we feel very angry with someone it's a kind of inhabiting a, a world of sharp lines between me and that person who did that to me and conversely those states where we feel a genuine sense of ease well-being joy, delight, connection are those places in which the boundaries have softened somehow where we feel somehow included in life you may have had the experience possibly in some quiet or connected moment here on retreat possibly in any situation of life maybe being in nature when one feels an incredible intimacy with what's happening maybe watching a sunset maybe lying on the grass maybe looking at the sky maybe just sitting quietly maybe anything maybe being with another person and one feels at one with would be the common language deeply intimate with in unity with one feels at one with life because the boundaries the world of subject and object and here and there somehow through the intimacy generated in the experience have just dissolved or fallen away temporarily when that happens if we're not careful we get a bit fixated on the experience we think that it was something about that sunset or something about being with that person that was magic or special or there was something about that feeling that was particularly significant and then we say, oh, I had this amazing experience. I, I, I was sitting there on the grass and I felt completely at one with life. And then, of course, our experience changes. The world of subjects and objects somehow uh, reasserts itself. And then if we're not careful, we say, oh, I've lost it. 
And we make the mistake of thinking there was something so significant about that feeling that if we could feel like that all the time, we'd know the mind of the Buddha. But maybe there's something a little flawed with that way of looking. The way of imagining that if I felt like that all the time, if that experience was always there. When there's deep, beautiful, important, we could say, experience, the experience has to change. has to. That's what we've seen moment by moment, day by day, sitting here, is that all our experience changes. But the understanding that comes from that can endure. More important than the quality of our experience is the understanding we can take from it. more important than the quality of our experience is the understanding that it contains. More, I'm going to say it a third time, more important than the, this is fantastic news, (laughs) more important than the quality of our experience is the understanding we can take from it. It means I don't have to be having a cosmic experience. I don't have to be having a pleasant experience. I don't have to be having any particular kind of experience. The one I'm having right now will do. Because it's, it's, it's the same as all others. At its heart. It gives an appearance when we're not looking carefully of being a collision between a subject and an object me thinking about that me being with this or whatever it might be and yet when we look underneath that seeming relationship we find an extraordinary intimacy where subject and object where all sense of separation can dissolve. And then this world just carries on going with seeming objects and seeming subjects. But at the heart of that, no duality. No separation. No problem.
may all beings know a deep intimacy with the fleeting world of objects. May all beings see through separation to a free and limitless life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.